0: Heinz with Jack, Season 3, Episode 36. Not today, Satan. Good morning, everyone. In the previous episode, we were talking about the screw tape letters when we sat down with Reverend McGreevy. And I thought that it would be good as an episode today to share the audio of a talk that I gave in Los Angeles a few months ago about the Screwtape Letters, about resisting temptation with C.S. Lewis, where I'm really just trying to distill down some of the core ideas of the Screwtape Letters and introduce it to an audience who, by and large, hadn't really even read much Lewis. We're going to look at the Screwtape Letters in far more detail next season. We're going to go through it letter by letter, chapter by chapter, and really, really pull it apart. But if you'd like a little bit of an introduction as to the kinds of things we're going to be talking about... Please enjoy the audio that follows. Good evening, everyone. It is lovely to be back here. It just seems like that time of year. Lent is happening, it's time to go to St. Ignatius and talk about something for 45 minutes. Uh, as you heard, I've been to this parish four years, five years in a row, I think it, it it's, it's lovely. It's a bit like a home away from home. As you heard, I drove up from San Diego, but those of you who haven't heard me before will realize that this is not a San Diegan accent. I am from England. Uh, But I've lived here for I think about 12 years now. So I live here, I work, I pay taxes, and yet I'm still not allowed to vote. And I'm sure all of the members of the United States will agree with me that taxation without representation isn't very fair. I don't know which government could possibly ever come up with that idea. There are probably three things that you need to know about me. The first is that I have a blog. It's called RestlessPilgrim.net. I've written at it for at least a decade now. I write about sacred scripture, church history, and apologetics, and whatever is on my mind. I always say it's cheaper than therapy. The other thing to know about me is that I have a podcast. It's called Pints with Jack, and together with my co-host, We are working our way, chapter by chapter, through the works of C.S. Lewis. Uh, So far, we've done Mere Christianity, The Great Divorce. This season, we're just finishing up uh, his novel, Till We Have Faces. And next season, we're going to be reading through The Screwtape Letters, which is going to be our primary source for tonight. This is the book. Uh, And lastly, the other thing you should know about me is that I just got engaged, literally, this Saturday. Thank you. She's a very lucky girl. It was funny, one of her co-workers said congratulations to her, he says, I don't know why I'm saying that to you, I should say that to David. (laughs) We should begin in prayer, and I'd like to open in prayer tonight by reading some of Psalm 27. The author of the Psalms repeatedly calls upon God for protection and the defeat of his foes. And it only seems reasonable that we should do the same when it comes to the spiritual battle that we are in. So if you'll please join me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. Teach me your ways, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Lord Jesus, as we spend this time together, give us open hearts as we discuss the wisdom that we can find in the Screwtape Letters as we hear the battle plans of the enemy. And we know that we can be confident to fight back only because of the power of the cross, because of the victory that you won there, that the grace that you poured out, that we received through faith, through prayer, and through the sacraments. And we ask this in your holy name, amen. amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about this book by C.S. Lewis. So a little bit of background. Who here has read a Lewis book? The Chronicles of Narnia? No? Okay. You've heard about him, you haven't read him. Well, okay, we're going to try and change that tonight. He was born in Northern Ireland, in Belfast. A lot of people think he's English, he's actually Irish. He was born in 1898 and he was baptized Clive Staples Lewis. In one of the Chronicles of Narnia, he begins the book, there once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrubb, and he almost deserved it. It was very similar with Lewis, he didn't like his name, and at the age of four, he insisted that he be called Jack. It was named after a dog, a pet dog that he had that had died. And I will warn you, I'm going to say Jack and Lewis interchangeably throughout this talk. It's the same person. I gave one talk uh, back in North Carolina, and somebody said, I really like that stuff about Lewis and this other person. Jack, who is he? Same person. Now, Lewis had quite a lot of tragedy in his life. His mother died during his childhood. When he wrote about it in his biography, he said, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable, disappeared from my life. So he's a nine-year-old boy, his mother dies, and his father sends him off to boarding school in England. And that's pretty much where he spends the rest of his life. He was raised a Christian, but he became a confirmed atheist very early, even while he was still at school. About this time, World War I begins, and he goes and fights. In fact, on his 19th birthday, he arrived at the front lines in France. Quite a present. After being injured, he goes back to England, he goes to Oxford University, and there he really excels at his studies. But progressively, he starts seeing problems with his atheism. He starts seeing things in the world that he can't explain from a naturalistic point of view, an atheistic point of view. And eventually, he becomes a theist. He believes in God. And he really wasn't happy that this had happened. In his biography, he writes of the night when he became a theist. And he says this You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of Him who I so earnestly desired not to meet but I eventually gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England it's not like a lot of conversion stories that you hear when people are filled with joy he was not pleased by this but this was just a conversion to theism he believed in God a little while later after a long, late-night conversation with some of his friends. He then put his faith in Christ and became a Christian. And at Oxford, he was part of this group called the Inklings. This was an informal, literary discussion group. And it was made up of people like Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien. Who has read any of those books? No, no, no. Who's seen the movies? okay. Yeah, okay, okay yeah, right. that's That's how that usually works. Well, if you enjoyed the movies, you can thank C.S. Lewis, because for the longest time, C.S. Lewis was the only person who was reading The Lord of the Rings. He was the one that encouraged Tolkien to finish it and publish it. And the Inklings, they would meet in Lewis's rooms at Magdalen College on Thursday nights, and they would read their work to each other. And they would also meet on Tuesday mornings at a local pub. It was called The Eagle and Child. Uh, locals called it the bird and baby, and they would meet there on Tuesday mornings to talk. And that's why my podcast is called Pints with Jack, because it's like we are also at an Eagle and Child pulling up a barstool next to C.S. Lewis and talking about his work. And over the course of his career, he wrote many, many books across a massive range of genres. He wrote fantasy, science fiction, apologetics. And the book we're going to look at tonight, it almost defies genre. Is it fantasy? Is it apologetics? Is it satire? And as I said before, the book we're going to be looking at is The Screwtape Writers. This was published in 1942, so this is during World War II. It was dedicated to J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, although apparently he wasn't a fan of the book. Can you imagine? Having somebody dedicate a book to you, and you read it, you go, it's not very good. But this was the book that made Lewis famous, particularly on this side of the Atlantic. Because of this book, he got on the cover of Time Magazine. When was the last time he had a theologian on the cover of Time Magazine? But what is this book like? The Scrutic Letters, it's a collection of 31 letters. And each of them is a chapter of the book. And these letters, they are written from a senior demon, called Screwtape, to a junior demon, who is also his nephew, who's called Wormwood, hence the Screwtape letters. And Screwtape is teaching his nephew the art of temptation, because Wormwood has been assigned a human being whom he refers to as the patient. And it is Wormwood's job to lead this man to hell. Remember 1 Peter chapter 5, where it says, Be sober and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, solid in your faith. And the Screwtape letters it's full of wisdom, humor, and some fabulous character names. In addition to Screwtape and Wormwood, you also have sluggob, glubos and Toadpipe. And the important thing to remember when reading the Screwtape letters is that it is being written by a demon. And therefore, everything is turned on its head. Good is bad. Bad is good. In hell, they don't have a hierarchy. They have a lower When Screwtape talks about the enemy, he's, not, he's talking about God. When he talks about our Father below, He's talking about Satan. And so we need to remember that when we're reading the screw Tape Letters, that we can't quite trust screw Tape in what he says. And we're very often going to have to take what he says and turn it upside down to fix it. And just to make this clear, because I'm going to be reading from this book today, when I'm reading from the screw Tape Letters... <laughs> oh, that's fitting. Just so you know that what I'm saying might not be true. I will be wearing the horns. And then you'll know you have to untwist what I'm reading. Because if we can untwist what I read, then we'll have strategies to defend ourselves, and we'll have a way to annoy the devil. That's really my basic goal tonight, that we will learn how to annoy the devil. I'll put these back on short. Now, the scriptate letters first appeared, not as a book, but it was serialized. So one of these letters appeared each week in the Guardian magazine. It was a Church of England magazine, and they would just print one of these letters. And in one of Lewis's biographies, the biographers note that there was at least one clergyman who wrote to the magazine, to the Guardian, and told them that he was cancelling his subscription. He was cancelling his subscription because of those screw tape letters that you've been been publishing. He said some of the advice in it is not only erroneous, it's not only bad, it's practically demonic. So he was going to cancel his subscription. It's rather like when you post an article from a a news satire website like The Onion or The Eye of the Tiber or Babylon Bee, and people on Facebook don't realise that it's satire and they get all angry about it. helpful to speak briefly about the genesis of this book. What inspired Lewis to write this very strange book? In 1940, he listened to a speech by Adolf Hitler. It is in the middle of the blitz, so bombs are raining down on Great Britain. And Lewis tuned in on the radio to listen to this speech from Hitler. It was entitled My Last Appeal to Great Britain a great empire will be destroyed." And Hitler was basically appealing to Great Britain to not fight them anymore, just to give up, and all would be well. And Lewis was shocked at the effect that this had on him as he was listening. He later wrote this letter to his brother. He said, I don't know if I'm weaker than other people, but it is a positive revelation to me how, while Hitler's speech lasts, It is impossible not to waver just a little. Statements which I know to be untrue all but convince me, at any rate for the moment, if only the man says them unflinchingly. As Lewis was listening to Hitler's speech, he knew the things that he was saying were incorrect, they were wrong. But he was so good at propaganda, so good at his turn of phrase, so subtle, Lewis said that there were moments there when he started to doubt. And then the following day, he goes to church. Normally he goes to the early service, but he overslept that day, so he had to go to the noonday service, and he wasn't very happy about that, because at that service, there was the organ, and an organist who chose music that Lewis did not like. And there was also a clergyman who preached at that service, who Lewis thought was dull. I'm sure you have never been to a church where either of those two things have been true. But bored by the Sermon, Lewis started doodling, and he started thinking and reflecting on that speech of Hitler's the night before, and how similar it is to Satan's temptations, because Satan has a similar kind of persuasive power to make us want to choose things that aren't in our best interest. And this led to an idea for a book. This is where he came up with the idea for the Screwtape Fighters. So, if you are ever in church and you are a bit bored during the sermon, you never know, God might inspire you to write a book that will benefit millions. Although, I'm sure you don't have boring homilies here. This is if you're visiting neighboring parishes. Now, why is this book great? This book is great because it reminds us of a very important truth that we all too easily forget. That we are in a battle. In Ephesians 6, St. Paul writes, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand it's very easy to forget that we live in a spiritual war. Particularly because battling the devil isn't like it often is in the movies. My day-to-day life does not look like scenes from The Exorcist. It's something far subtler than that. But when we remember that there are forces of darkness, and when we remember that we are at war, we behave differently. We prepare. And the genius of the Scrutic Letters is it teaches us about the psychology of temptation. How it is we end up choosing things, lesser things, instead of God. And what's really clever about this book, because we're getting all of this from the demonic point of view, because we have the enemy's playbook, so to speak, it makes us pay attention. Because imagine those of you who are in high school and those of you who graduated a year or two ago, imagine if you found out what the opposing team was going to try and do to try and beat you in an upcoming game. Wouldn't you prepare? Wouldn't you have countermeasures ready? Now, my goal tonight is to inspire you to go home and read this book. And I have two copies to give away. I'm going to try to give you a flavour of this book by reading the majority of one of these letters, so you get a feel for it. And then after that, I'm going to jump around some of the other letters, which speak out some of the more important topics, or at least I think they're more important, or at least they spoke more loudly to me. And then after that, I'll wrap up. We'll have some time for Q&A, Q&A. and again, if you ask questions during Q&A, you might get a book, and then we'll wrap up them. So let me begin with letter number two. (laughs) My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I would trust you hardly even wish to. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no no need to despair, Hundreds of adult converts have, come, have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favour. This is me speaking now, <laughs> just want to be clear. So, the letter begins by Screwtape being angry. The wormwood has allowed his patient to become a Christian, but Screwtape isn't worried. He says, We had lots of people become Christian for a time. Not a problem. We got them to hell eventually. And he points out another reason to be confident. Because he says, All of this man's habits are still in our favor. And the theme of habits is going to come up again and again in Screwtape. And this builds on an idea that Lewis, you find it throughout his works, and it's, it's the power of the small change. Heavenly and hellish creatures. Lewis thought that there wasn't, there were no real insignificant decisions. Every decision you make is going to be turning you into a certain kind of person. It's going to be either turning you towards a little bit more of a heavenly kind of person, or a little bit more kind of hellish person. You're either going to grow in virtue, or you're going to grow in vice. One of our great allies at the present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church that we see spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So, Screwtape is saying that we're going to use the church to our advantage. You can become a Christian, we'll use the church, but, but not. The church as she really is, not the church throughout history, with all of the great saints that we see in the statuary and stained glass, the church in heaven surrounding the throne of God, singing his praises. Not that church. Scruty has something a little bit different in mind. He wants to talk about the local parish. He says, All your patient sees is the half-finished, sham gothic erection on the building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy that neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts and a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, in very small print. He's talking about the parish that this guy's going to. He says the liturgy isn't very good and the music's terrible, again. Catholics. We never complain about those things, do we? Never. When he gets to the pew and looks around, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Screwtape says, fine, let him go to church. I'll let him be really disappointed with what he finds there in the pews next to him. Real or imaginary? And after i had chosen this letter, I was trying to work out which one I would read to you. And I know why I chose this one, because this is basically my story. I wasn't always Catholic. I left for several years. And it was because I went to a parish, looked around me, decidedly unimpressed and walked out. We'll see how Screwtape did that. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Screwtape says, let us focus on the people that are around him. Let us see all of their faults. It can be something as minor as the fact that they don't sing very well. They wear odd clothes. They sing out of key. Let it annoy him. Can you imagine anybody being shallow enough to fall for this? <laughs> Work hard, then, on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a clergyman. I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. Of course they do. If the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player, or the man with squeaky boots is a miser and an extortioner, then your task is so much easier. All you have to do is keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, and consider myself in some sense to be a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it's possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. It is Wellwood. It is. Handle him properly, and it will never come into his head. This is my story. I looked around, and I saw people who were annoying. and I also saw their faults. And at no point, at no point, did I ever wonder if they were shocked by my sins, As I was by theirs. Screwtape pens. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favourable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind for as long as you can. Your affectionate uncle, scooting Have you ever had that kind of narrative in your head? Have you ever thought, you know, I did really well being Catholic, being Christian. And, you know, it turned up, to church on Sunday, God kind of owes me that, doesn't he? This is the kind of silly thinking that we get into when we listen to screw tape. We forget that we are saved by grace, and no matter what the faults of the local church, <laughs> only sinners are allowed to join. You know, we, we've lived through a period of church history where there have been an awful lot of scandals, and it's a very common thing for people to say, the church is full of sinners. The correct response is yes. And we have room for one more. Would you like to join us? This was something that was fought out in the early church. What do we do, what do, we do with the substandard Christians? Can you kick them out? And the church said no. This is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. That was most of letter two. For the rest of my time, I'm just going to bounce around some of the other topics that Scrooge addresses. And he actually returns to the subject of church attendance a few letters later. I think that's worth examining. My dear (laughs) Wormwood, You mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient has continued to attend one church, and only one, since he was converted, and he's not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report of the causes of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very, very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster and a connoisseur of churches. Hmm. Lewis wrote this in the 40s. I think this is much more rampant today. I'm assuming most people here are Roman Catholic. Some of my friends joke and say that they are Roaming Catholic. They will go from parish to parish to parish, depends on how I feel, who I want to see. And this is kind of dangerous, because this fosters a kind of ecclesial consumerism. As Screwtape as, as says, he becomes a taster and a connoisseur of churches, rather than coming as a people, rather than coming to receive the sacraments, to hear the word of God preached, and to grow. You go there like Simon Cowell. Rather than going there to learn, we sit there as a judge. How many times have you heard of the homily and given it long out of ten? How many times have you thought, I want to say that bit, earn about at this point? Or just jump and say, too long. Notice the pattern with screw tape here. He says, if you can, don't let him go near the church at all. It's a dangerous area. But if he is going to do it, we have to twist it somehow. And that is the consistent pattern in screw tape letters. And it's based on good Augustinian theology. The idea is that evil isn't a thing. It's a, it's a privation. It's a twisting. It's a changing. It's seeking something too much or in the wrong way. So, Screwtape can't make anything. All he can do is take something that's good and twist it. Try and render his church going useless. I said that the theme of habits comes up a lot. And one of the things that Screwtape says is you can use that to your advantage. He tells the story of a man who was a very devout atheist. And he was sitting in the British Library, reading. And that's dangerous. Lewis himself wrote in his biography, his autobiography, he said, a young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. And this happened with one of Screwtape's own patients. He said he was reading in this library, and it's, the British Library is gorgeous. It's, it's like a church. And Screwtape says, I saw his mind going in a direction that I didn't like. And he tells Wormwood that a fool would have tried to argue with him. He says, don't try and argue with him, because as soon as you bring in reason, you're taking things onto the enemies, gods, battleground, because he can reason too. He said, I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control, and suggested it was about time for lunch. The patient brightened up considerably. By the time I added, much better to come back after lunch and go into it with a fresh mind. He was already halfway out the door. Once he was in the street, the battle was won. Screwtake says that he went to the man's appetite because he had control of it. We are in a period of Lent at the moment. Three things we typically do in Lent prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. This is one of the reasons that we fast. It's so that we have control over our own bodies, so we can say no to them. The Catechism says that fasting is an apprenticeship in self-mastery, is a training in human freedom. Do you think of fasting in those terms? I think, yes, no, I fast. I train myself in freedom. But that's what it is. Because if I can't say no to the donut that's at the office, or the chocolate that's offered to me, how on earth am I going to say no to It appears that in one of the letters, Wormwood had been wanting to get his patient to commit some really great sins, and Screwtape tells him that he's thinking about this all wrong. It's a great sin? Great sins. Okay. He wants him to be a murderer or uh, steal the crown jewels. But Screwtape says, no, let them be small. You will say that these are very small sins and, doubtless, like all young tempters, are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. This is why throughout the scriptures and in church teaching, the church exhorts us to be vigilant, and vigilant even over small sins, because it begins a slow fade. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm in church, I see things so clearly, right and wrong. The life that calls me to, and the life that I need to reject. When I'm up at the altar, receiving communion is black and white. But somewhere between the altar and the back door, things start turning into shades of gray. And in my life, I start making small compromise after small compromise, doing something that's not that bad. I can skip prayer tonight. It's Friday. I really just don't feel like fasting. This comes back to Lewis's idea of heavenly and hellish creatures, that there are no small decisions. That everything you do is either done virtue or vice. It's either turning you towards being a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. And what Scrutik emphasizes again and again in the book, he says, you don't want your patient to do anything. He says, think of your patient as a series of concentric circles. On the outer circle, you have his imagination. Then you have his intellect, and then you have his will. And Scrutik says, don't let him get to the will. If there's an idea, let's say, he hears Father preach about caring for the poor one Sunday during night. He says, if, if you must, he can imagine what it would be like to feed the poor. He can think, maybe, about volunteering. The thing you must never let him do is act. Because when he acts, he's starting to build that virtue. I think this is true for all of us. Say that again, please. If he acts. If he acts, if he does something about it, if he not only imagines about maybe I can feed the poor, not only thinks about it, well, they we have a soup kitchen on Thursday nights at the mission. If he actually goes there and does it, Screwtape's mission is failing badly. Because when he actually acts on his faith, it's like a muscle. When he goes to the gym, You pick up heavy things and put them back down, and pick them back up and put them back down. It's the most pointless thing in the world, but I've got to get my wedding body. What I'm doing is I'm strengthening a muscle by repetition. I'm hearing the word of God and I'm acting upon it. In the New Testament, St. James, he writes this epistle, and the central idea of this epistle is faith without works is dead. He says that you can believe in Jesus, but if that doesn't find its way out in works, that faith is incomplete. It's barren. It's dead. The thing that's needed to make it complete, to bring it to life, to produce fruit, is works. Because it makes that faith This is what forms virtue. Scrutic also has a lot to say about prayer. And in particular, he wants people to focus on feelings. As before, he says, try and get him not to pray. How many times have you thought, I would would like to do a little prayer, but I don't have time for the full rosary. I could do a decade now. No, no. I'm going to wait until later when I've got lots of time. The house is quiet, I'll do it there. And what happened? You watched Netflix and fell asleep. So he says, do what you can to stop him praying. But if he's going to pray, we can do something with that. When they pray for courage, let them really be trying to feel brave. When they say they are praying for forgiveness, let them be trying to feel forgiven. Teach the humans to estimate the value of each prayer by the success in producing the desired feeling. And never let them suspect how much this depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired in the moment. Scruti says, if your patient is going to pray, teach him that his prayer is only worth anything if he feels like the thing that he's praying for. And you know the problem with that. If my prayer is dependent on my feelings, I'm not going to keep at it for very long. If I'm praying for courage, it's because I'm scared. If I'm praying for strength, it's because I'm weak. Sometimes God does give us the feelings, but not always. The value of the prayer isn't in the feelings which are evoked by it, but just the very fact you are reaching out to God for help.
1: He says there's also something else
0: that we can do to disrupt prayers. He says, okay, you're probably not going to be able to stop your patient from praying for his mother. But if he is going to do it, get him to pray for her soul. He says there are two advantages to this. The first is, if he's praying for her soul, then with a little bit of guidance from you, you can make that mean. That he spends his prayer time thinking about all of the things about his mother that annoy him. How many times have you prayed a prayer, something along the lines of, Lord, please fix Joe. Make him not such a sinner. Make him not so annoying the entire time. Lord, give my mother patience. She's very short tempered at the moment. By focusing on the spiritual aspect. What, what he's doing is he's separating out the two. He's giving the, the prayer time really an opportunity to list off all of the things that irritate him. And he says also, because he's such a young Christian, he doesn't really know what soul is. So it's almost like he's praying for somebody entirely different. And Skrutik says something quite chilling. I've had patients of my own so well in hand that they can be turned at a moment's notice from an impassioned prayer for a wife or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. What Screwtape had managed to do is to separate the prayer from the charity that it should have evoked within the person. So he says, don't let your patient pray for his mother's bad back. That makes it real. He sees suffering that's going, going to cause empathy and love for his mother. Let him pray for her soul. One of my favorite sections in Screwtape relates to humility. Because I have to say I'm amazing at humility. Give myself an A-. It's really an A, but it has to be a minus to show up on humble. Your patience has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them, but this is especially true for humility. Catch him at a moment when he's really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble, and almost immediately pride pride in his own humility will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of the attempt. And so on, through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long, for fear that he will awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. So he says, if the guy is actually being humble, draw his attention to the fact That'll make him prideful. And if he realises he's being prideful, congratulate him on that and just keep going. We're nearing the end of our time, so there's one other... Yeah, there's there's one other lesson I wanted to talk about. Wormwood is unhappy happy because things seem to be flagging for his patient. He doesn't seem to be getting quite the same joy in life. And Screwtape tells him, have you never heard of the Law of undulation? So it's this idea, that during your life, do you day, there are peaks and there are troughs. There are times when work is amazing, and there's times when you're not quite so excited about it. There's times when family life is incredible, and there's times when the kids are being really annoying. And he says that there are these peaks and troughs in, in life all the time. And he says, this isn't any of your doing, but he says, we can, we can take advantage of these trough periods. That's the time to attack. But he does offer uh, a very severe warning, because he says that we make the use of these trough periods when life is hard. But He says, so does God. Do not be deceived, one would. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human No longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. These are the periods that God uses. And when we go through these trauma periods, these times when God feels absent, the time when work is hard, life is hard, family is hard, these are the moments when we can be attacked. But these are also the moments when we can lean on God and trust in him, regardless. Now the book ends with the patient's death. Spoiler warning. For Tape, this is a tragedy. But for us, it's a victory. Because he now goes to heaven. Wormwood has failed. Screwtape has failed. And Screwtape writes what happened in that final moment, in that moment of death. He says that the patient saw not only his guardian angels, but God. He saw not only them, he saw him. This animal. This thing begotten in a bed could look on him. All the delights of sense or heart or intellect with which she could have once tempted him, even the delights of virtue itself, now seem to him in comparison, but as the half-nauseous attractions of a rattled harlot would seem to a man who hears that his true beloved, whom he has loved all his life, and whom he believed is dead, is alive and now even at the door. Screwtaker says in that moment he saw his angels, he saw God, he saw you, and all the things that you would use to try and tempt him, steer him one way or the other, they no longer affect him, because he sees God. That great goodness that in comparison everything else seems worthless. And this reminds me of Hebrews 12. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For who the joy was set before him endured the cross, Despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is how I'd like to end tonight with this reminder. Because in the Scrutic letters, in that moment when the patient sees God, sees his guardian angels, wormwood, everything is clear. And it should be clear to us now that we have an adversary, the devil who wants our destruction, but we also have a Saviour, Jesus, who has already battled him and won. He battled him in the desert and won. He battled him on the cross and won, and is now enthroned in heaven and gives us grace to run the race, to resist temptation. And we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. All the angels and the saints who have run this race ahead of us. And it's like we are in a giant stadium, and they are cheering us towards the finish line. So let's end by praying and asking for God's grace and for their intercession. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, you came and rescued us from evil when we had already walked away from you, while we were still sinners, you came and rescued us. You battled the enemy that we were too weak to battle. But you now give us your grace so that we can take our place in this fight. Your saints pray for us, and your angels pray for us. And I pray that in the coming days and weeks, that we would be aware of the battle that's going on, and that we would fight with confidence. We have a Savior who has already conquered the grave. And we ask all the angels and saints to pray for us, and particularly St. Michael as we pray. St. Michael, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, a prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Father and Amen. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope that it managed to whet your appetite for season four. When we're going to be going through the screw tape letters in much, much more detail. But that's going to be it for screw tape for the time being. Next episode, we're going to change gears and we're going to be heading to Narnia, where we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers!